and that's one of the things that I want to do is help my clients become confident investors so that they can spend more time doing what they love rather than trying to figure out where should I put my money? How should I invest? What's going to give me the best return? You know, these are all things that could be known. Hello there and welcome back to the My Future Business Show. It's Rick Nusky here once again. And once again, thank you very much for joining us. It's such a pleasure for me. It's my greatest gift in life to be able to host the My Future Business Show for you. And it's making all the difference to me knowing that the show is in fact making a difference for you. Now on today's show, I have the pleasure of welcoming investment coach, Mr. Ira Work. Welcome to the show, Ira. Thank you very much, Rick. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. My pleasure to have you here. Now, you and I are going to be talking about the myths of investing, the science behind investing, and what it takes to become a confident investor. Now, there is certainly a lot to unpack here, and we're going to take a bit of a journey through that investment sphere. But first of all, where are you calling in from? I'm sorry? Where are you calling in from? I'm calling her from Nashville, Tennessee. Wonderful. Is that uh, is that been home for a long time, or did you move there? Um, it's actually been my home now for 15 years. Originally, I was born in New York. Uh, my parents moved us to Florida between my junior and senior year of high school. So I immediately went into college down in Florida, mm -hmm. and I was there for 30 years. I started wow. my career in Florida. Yeah, look, Florida is a wonderful place to be, apparently. So it must have been some sort of significant thing that uh, inspired you to move. There was. I had the opportunity to come to work for the company I've been with for the past 15 years um, and was able to help investors actually become confident. So what, what do you find about the place that you're living now that you love the most? Well, I do actually enjoy the Four Seasons. Yep. Um, I didn't like it as much when I was living in New York, but Florida basically has two seasons, hot <laughs> and hotter. Um, so Tennessee is kind of like in the middle. Right. Uh, it doesn't get the real harsh cold winters like I got in New York, Yep. Uh, but it's got a true four seasons. And while I really don't like the cold, uh, the winters, I do find it to be very fashionable. So yes. I get to wear nice sweaters, a long jacket, <laughs> just a, a lot different than the summertime, you know, shorts and t-shirts. See, the My Future Business Show, Ira, is all about learning about the people behind businesses and the things they do before we jump into the core of the course. So tell me a little bit about your life. Now, where did you grow up? Well, as I said a moment ago, I spent the first 17 years in Long Island. Yep. Um, I have a brother and two sisters. Yep. Uh, we moved down to Florida so that my father can start another career, mm -hmm. uh, which he's now retired from. Um, but it was primarily New York growing up, growing up in, you know, in Long Island. What can you remember about your childhood? Anything, anything fun that you could share with us? Um, you know, I think the best part of growing up was the time I remember with my grandmother. Ah. Uh, I got the, I had the privilege of seeing her every week. Uh, she was very instrumental. I remember her talking about getting good grades and working hard yep. and always being honest. Um, you know, she really inspired me. And one of the things that she had said to me was treat people the way you want them to treat your mother. Yes. And that has a bigger impact on me now um, and has throughout my career 
figures I tend to think about, well, had I not heard that, I don't know how much different my life would be. You know, we all know the golden rule. Yep. You know, treat people the way you want them to treat you. But for the most part, do we really worry about how people treat us? You know, we could easily throw people away. Mm-hmm. When it comes to your mom, you know, it's like, I'm very protective of my mom. <laughs> yep. So I often think when I'm dealing with clients, how would I want my mom to be treated with, with her money if I was not in the business? That's so that I think is the biggest thing about my, growing up. That's some pretty uh, sage advice there for anybody who's listening to the show. And Ira, this is where the difference between this business show and any other business show that you come across, we talk about the, I guess, the people behind the businesses and, you know, the mindset and the people that they grew up around. And tell me, was there anybody else in your formative years that um, helped mold you into the man that you've become today? Uh, my dad, for sure. Mm. You know, my dad was an electrician. He was a union worker. Yep. And one of the things that he said to me was, if you can work in your own business, by all means, go ahead and do it. Yep. He said, benefits are great. You know, and being a union man, my dad had really, really good benefits. We had good health insurance. He had a pension plan. Uh, he had retirement. He had all those things. But he said to me, you can never eat benefits. Nah. He said, so if you have the ability to go to work for yourself, you want to do that. And uh, went to college, graduated college, and basically have worked for myself ever since. Ever since, yeah, wonderful story. I'd love to learn a little bit about what you do in your pastime. And do you give yourself permission to actually step away from your business to have some downtime for yourself? Oh, without a doubt. Yep. Um, yep. I, love to, I love to play golf. Oh. <laughs> I just wish I was good as, I, as much as I love to play. Uh, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I think that I actually play golf uh, because it reminds me how much I actually enjoy my career. Um, I scuba dive. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I what, scuba dive. In what fact, depth my, can you go to? Uh, I've been down 100 feet. Wow. Um, in fact, my wife and I will be leaving next month to go down to Roatan, which is in Honduras. Oh, uh, so I could do some scuba diving. That's incredible. You know, I remember, yeah. I remember when uh, many years ago now, where I went to Paddy Dive Centers in Indonesia when I was over there to learn how to and get my ticket to dive. And it's just another world, isn't it? It is. You know, you see more, you see more life in fifteen minutes of scuba diving than you'll see in a three-hour hike. Yes, absolutely. It's just unbelievable and the colors they're so vibrant you know and you know it's funny you would ask like how deep have i gone yep. the reality is most of the really good scuba diving is probably within 30 to 40 feet you're not much. you can actually see more life in scuba diving or actually in snorkeling yep and have a lot more fun than going down 100 feet because once you start getting down beyond 60 feet or so yep it does it does start to lose color yep. the light is not penetrating down mm-hmm. so while it is fun to look at the uh computer on your hand and see your, and see the depth gauge and yep. how far down you are and 100 yep. feet you know most of the really good stuff is a lot less deep than that i'm always interested to know what's the most interesting thing that you've seen at depth um, well, I got to swim fairly close to sharks. 
Yep. Uh, the best scuba diving I ever did was in Bora Bora. Um, and the life in Bora Bora was just unbelievable. You know, tons of sharks, yep. manta rays. You had to stay really, really still lying on the floor of the ocean yeah. so that you didn't spook the manta rays. That's incredible. Oh, I tell you what, you can't buy experience. And how, what would you say to anybody out there, I mean, in terms of whether or not they should, they're thinking about doing something in terms of their bucket list? And what would you, what would you say to them if they're hesitating? Um, do it, do it when you can. Yep. I mean, I wouldn't wait to retire to start doing the bucket list things. Yep. Do the bucket list things now. And here's the reason why I could say that, Rick, without any hesitation. I'm a two-time cancer survivor. Yeah. So the first time I had cancer was in 04 and 05 mm. when I had my battle. I was 43 years old, and I thought to myself, you know, battled it through 44, and I thought, you know what? If I could get 43 more years on the back end, yes. and prior to that, I always thought I'd live to be 100. If I can get 43 more years after this, I will live to the age of 87. I will consider myself to have a good life. Yeah. Well, then, as time passed from 2005, I started thinking, you know what? I could live to be 100 again. And I started thinking a lot more positively. Now, I do have a joke about that. <laughs> and that is, you know, my plan is to live to 99 or die trying um, because people will feel bad if I die at 99, that I didn't make it to 100. <laughs> yep. Where if I died at 100, I did actually outlive my goal. You got the time. Say, you know what? It was 100. He was old. <laughs> but then, you know, I thought I was going to get through my 50s unscathed. Um, I turned 60 in February of 2021. Mm. And October 3rd, 2020. I was diagnosed with cancer for a second time. And as a result of that, you know, you begin to realize, I realized it with the first bout with cancer and I realized it again mm. with the second bout of cancer that you just don't know your time. So if you have that bucket list item, whether it's to go hang gliding, you know, I, w I met my, my wife on a zip line in Costa Rica. Ah, ah, wonderful. Yeah, I was divorced for about a year. Um, I was on a singles trip, and my wife was standing behind me. I didn't know her, and I had this GoPro camera on my head, and I would turn <laughs> it off after I finished one of the runs just to save battery. Yep. And I would turn it back on, and my wife has this big fear of, of heights. So she would like be looking down and I would turn my camera on and tap her and say, is my camera on? And she would look at me, say yes, and look away really quickly. <laughs> um, and then I wouldn't, I didn't see her after that for about six months. And then we kept bumping into each other. So you just never know. You never know. Um, I went parachute jumping. I never thought I would do that. No. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm currently learning how to fly a plane. Yeah. Um, something that I had thought about when I was 14 years of age. And during my second bout of cancer, I realized, you know, I always wanted to do this. I'm not getting younger. Yep. I'm certainly not getting healthier. I mean, yes, I might be cancer again, but let's face it, 
we're not getting healthier as we age. No. So I thought, you know what? Let's do it while we still can. And, you know, I'm pursuing my private pilot's license. Yeah, wow, that's a credit to you. It's, a, it's wonderful because, you know, we sit here and we often think, oh, you know, I'll just do it tomorrow. There might not be another day, you know? That's it. I mean, you know, some crazy person can cross the lane in a car yeah. and run into you and yeah. kill you or you just never know. I mean, look, I didn't think I was be diagnosed with cancer for a second. A second time. Tell me, um, Ira, what's it done for your mindset? I know that it would have been a fairly dark period of time there first and maybe second time around. Would you mind sharing a little bit about what it's done for your mindset? Um, sure, be happy to. Um, <clears throat> It helped me realize that, and this might sound weird as a businessman, mm. that money is not the most important thing. No, that doesn't sound weird at all. Um, you know, we're all working a lot, and I believe that we should play as hard as we work. Yep. That we shouldn't make life about our work. Life is what we do. It's yep. not who we are. Um, and it's not who I am mm -hmm. and learn to learn to do the things that you enjoy doing because you only have one time you and don't be afraid don't be afraid to step out and take risk you know yep. risk is where, risk is where you grow from um, it helped me to realize just how important family is mm -hmm. how important experiences are Yep. Um, you know, it also helped me realize that um, money is not the most important thing in life. You can't take it with you, can you, or? Can't take it with you. No. Nope. Um, you know, and it doesn't buy happiness. It really doesn't. It really you know, doesn't. People say, oh, well, if I'd be a lot more happy if I had more money. <laughs> Would you? No, <laughs> Would you? You, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> Tell me, what's the day look like for you? Are you an early riser? I'm a, I'm a, I like to sleep in when I can, but I never do. <laughs> um, I would prefer to stay up late yep. and sleep in. Yep. Um, I do get up early when I have to get up early for appointments or to take care of my dog. But my dog will stay in bed with me, so that's not a problem. Um, <laughs> you know, but for the most part, you know, I get up, I read a little bit in the morning, I try to eat healthy. Yes. I try to have, you know, a good protein shake with vitamins. Mm -hmm. um, but no, if I can sleep till 9 o'clock every morning, that's where I would be. I have a I have a fondness for pets. Uh, we have three dogs. What sort of dog do you have? Um, I have a 17-year-old Shih Tzu. Oh. And a nine-year-old Yorkie. Yorkie. Wow, they've they've stayed the path a while, haven't they? Uh-huh. We become, love them. They've become, you know, a, definitely a part of the family. That's for sure and certain. Yeah, and and I and I I refer to them as terminal toddlers. <laughs> You know, because let's face it, you know, like a toddler, you know, still being diapers and stuff, right? Yeah, they yeah. They can't go to the refrigerator. They can't cook for themselves. You know, they have to be guided around. Um, and that's how with dogs. It doesn't matter that they're 17 years of age. You're still walking them. You're still picking up after them. You're still feeding them. Um, and they can't communicate what's really bothering them. 
Yes. So they are really like terminal toddlers. Absolutely. You know, this is the sort of call that I really enjoy because we are obviously going to shift gears in a little while talking about the core of investing. But we get to learn a little bit about IRA, you know, the you know, almost in the third person sort of deal. But it's important because I think it gives context to the call. Now, tell me, you talked about diet earlier on. Do you like to go out for a meal with your wife and enjoy the social scene? What do you like to do? Um, my wife and I are very active in theater. Yep. Um, both as um, you know, uh, attendees and, and donors. Uh, we're also involved in um, the symphony. Yes. Yep. Uh, so we like, the, we like the arts, whether arts, it's yep. visiting a museum, uh, going to a concert. Um, you know, live theater is probably our most favorite thing to attend. Yes. Uh, but we're also very much into just hanging out with our friends and having a nice glass of wine. Absolutely. Oh, goodness me. I live in a place called McLaren Vale. Right. It's a wine region in, in Australia and uh, it's dangerous. It's a dangerous place to live if you like wine. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, we've, my wife and I, um, prior to COVID, uh, yep. we were, uh, on an annual basis, we would attend some wine festivals out in California. Oh, yes. So I would imagine it's very similar to the vineyards <laughs> in Australia. Well, so, if you can get your hands on, uh, you know, a Kunawara or something like that or a, uh, something from McLaren Vale region, I recommend that you do so. That's for sure and certain. Now, I will Ira, tell me that. Absolutely. Now, tell me a little bit uh, about, you know, you touched on, you know, immediately going into your own business from day dot uh, based on your father's feedback. What was your first ever entrepreneurial experience? Mine was washing cars. Um, mine was delivering newspapers. Ah, did you have yeah. to fold them? I'm sorry? Did you have to fold them as well? Uh, fold them, yes. yes. Put, them in my, my, <laughs> put them in the basket on my yeah. bike. Yep. And then deliver them to the newspaper uh, boxes, which were like mailboxes, but on the side or on the side of the post. Um, but it was also more going to the houses that didn't subscribe yeah. and knocking on the doors, introducing myself and asking them if they would like to sign up for the newspaper. Of course. And then having to go each week to the you know, people who did subscribe and collect the money. Yes. You know, so I learned about, you know, what it is to get rejected when people would say, we're not interested, get off my stoop. <laughs> uh, and we learned about the benefits of the tip and making money. Yeah, that's so, wonderful. I love yeah. it. You know, you don't realize how wholesome those times are until they, they move away from you, do you? No, you don't. Now, you don't. Tell, tell me a little bit about... Um, I guess your uh, for, for professor your uh, background for context on the call. We're obviously going to be shifting gear now and talking about investing. How was it that you uh, decided that investing was going to be your path? Well, um, you know, I, I, it wasn't actually planned. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I was in my senior year of college. I was trying to figure out. All right, what am I going to do? I live in Florida, which there's not a whole lot of industry in Florida. Mm. And I was getting ready to graduate with a degree in business administration. Yep. Uh, so I did what I thought would be the best thing. I applied to law school, uh, but I didn't get into law school. So my mom had a neighbor who was a stockbroker, and 
I was trying to play in penny stocks in college. Yep. You know, make a little bit, lose a little bit, make a little yep. bit, lose a little bit more. Um, and she introduced me to him, and he introduced, you know, brought me up, introduced me to the manager of the office. Um, I had three different interviews, and they said, you know what? Upon graduation, come back and we'll hire you. Fantastic. So after I graduated, I went back to the office. I told them I graduated. And they said, well, all you have to do now is pass these tests. And then you can go to work full time. Yeah, wow. So, you know, I graduated college in December of 83. Mm -hmm. And I was licensed to be a stockbroker in March of 84. And that's where I've been ever since. Ever since. Now, I look at your uh, um, about page on the Paul Winkler uh, site, and we're going to be talking about that in a moment. But uh, you've got a lot going on here. I'm not sure what it all means, but I'm sure it's uh, one of those. Uh, uh, I think there are accreditations that you'd need to maintain: CHFC, RFC, AIF, AAMS, CASL, CRPF. <laughs> For anyone who wants to know, uh, does Ira have the qualifications to do this sort of work? Well, I'd suggest that he does. Now, <laughs> does that require ongoing annual sort of certification, Ira? Yeah, well, you know, Rick, the interesting thing is, and I don't know if you actually counted all those letters that follow my name, but there's actually more letters after my name than there are in my name, <laughs> even if I include my middle name. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, yes, um, all of those designations are for different courses of education that I have taken. And the reason that there are so many letters and designations is because the CHFC requires that I do 28 hours of education every year in order to keep my credentials. Yes. Yep. So my feeling is if I have to do this continuing education, I might as well do it in such a way that I earn another designation. Of course. So I've just continued to stay educated and learn more about different subjects in my field. Um, like for example, one of the designations that you didn't mention um, is the CDFA, the Certified Divorce Financial Analyst. Now I earned that designation, but in order to maintain that designation, I had to do 12 hours of divorce continuing education every two years. Mm -hmm. And that's not really the area that I was practicing in. Right. I took that designation, or that course, I should say. Um, I took that in order to learn about the process of the financial stuff. If any of my clients or any of their kids were going through divorce, that I could kind of give them a little bit of guidance up front. Yep. Um, and then point them in the right direction. But because I wasn't looking to make that a core part of my career and my planning process for my clients, mm. I didn't keep up the continuing education uh, in that area. Got it. Yep. You know, uh, so there are, you know, a few others that I had earned and had let go um, for the similar reasons. For similar but reasons. But yes, yep. every single one of those designations does require continuing education. And I just went through this where the College for Financial Planning, which is where I earned the um, accredit, um, 
oh, it slipped my mind which one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the designations that I earned, they actually did an audit. I got an email from them one day. Like, you need to provide us with the proof <laughs> yep. of your continuing education yep. for these two calendar periods. And it wasn't, you know, like a January through December. It was July through June, you know, eight, two years Previous later. Year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I had to like go back to other schools that I earned the continuing education from. Yep. And get the certificates to show them, yes, I did complete it. And they said, you're good to go. Well, you know, I think that's very important to be able to trust the people that there are people behind the people, if you like, that are maintaining these certifications and quality standards and, and licensing and all those things. So it, it really puts you in a really good position. Now, tell me a little bit about uh, the, uh, I guess that, let me start off by saying this as an educational show, there's going to be lots of people on here that don't know much about investing. Tell us a little bit about uh, the types of investing that there are available and what you prefer. Well, <coughs> Yeah, I like I like to say that I've sold pretty much everything. <laughs> yep. And, and when I say that, and when I say I like to say that, um, the only thing I really haven't sold in the investing financial planning arena, if you will, is health insurance. Right. Um, but every other type of investment, whether it's individual stocks or individual bonds dabbled a little bit with options, um, mutual funds, which is my core business right now, you know, my core business now for the last 20 plus years. Um, I did one limited partnership. I did re real estate investment trust known as REITs. I did yep. all life insurance, um, disability insurance, long-term care insurance. Um, all manner so of things. I pretty much sold it all. <laughs> Do you have a preference? Is there one that uh, you enjoy working with? I enjoy working with the securities, the mutual funds, and right. helping people create wealth. Um, insurance is not really a vehicle to create wealth, although mm -hmm. it's sold that way, yep. primarily because of the commissions involved. So our firm is a fee-only firm. We don't sell any products with commissions. In fact, we really kind of are in alignment with the way it is in Australia, yes, where the yes. financial advisors cannot sell investments on insurance. They can only sell, I'm sorry, investments with commissions. Yep. They can only sell insurance with commissions. That is true. So our investments that we sell here, we are strictly uh, fee-based and work solely as a fiduciary. Yep. We don't switch hats to... Mm -hmm do an a fee-based program and say we're a fiduciary and then take the fiduciary hat off and work as a broker dealer to sell a commission-based product. Yeah. It's almost like that conflict of interest has been avoided, hasn't it? Um, and we do everything possible that we can so much in fact that I have to refer my insurance business to people I trust because we don't want to have any appearance of having a conflict of interest. Well, tell me a little bit about that because you talked about trust and I think immediately about relationships. How important are the relationships that you have with your clients and other professionals in your industry and are they long-term? Um, my clients or the relationships? No, the clients you? first. We'll uh, yeah, yes. Yeah. So I have clients that have been with me for 
fairly close to 30 years. Wow. Um, you know, I joke about when I started in the industry back in 1984 and I was trained by the industry and that's where I was more transactional or commission based. Um, so when we do our radio show, you know, we'll talk about how when we were on the dark side, <laughs> uh, <Yep. laughs> selling the commission based product and, you know, basically living as a, you know, a, a, maybe a commission junkie, if you will, you know, you had to keep that going. Yeah. Um, you know, so now it's, you know, as a fiduciary doing what's in the client's best interest and being fee based allows me to say, stay on the same side as a client. For example, if the account goes up in value, which we both wanted to do, appreciation because yep. we both make more money. Mm-hmm. If the account goes down in value, you know, I make less money, but it keeps me in the process of continuing to monitor the accounts yep. and making sure that the right things are being done to manage the client's risk and expectations. And their profile and all the rest of it that goes along with it. Now, just for, again, the sake of context, what is your relationship with Paul Winkler? So Paul Winkler is the owner of the company. Mm -hmm. Um, We met in 2001. Yep. And in 2008, we were doing the same thing. We were both, I was working in Florida at the time. He had his office up here in Tennessee. But he had started a radio show, uh, roughly in 1999. And in 2008, he approached me and said, look, my radio show has just absolutely exploded. And if I had the physical ability to work 24 seven, I would not be able to help as many people that are coming to me for help. And I need some people that I know and I trust and have the heart of a teacher to come and help me. And I went home, I spoke to my wife and we decided to come up to Tennessee to, you know, work with Paul and, you know, help investors, what we like to call save investors from those people who are just really out to sell them products. Sell them products. And yeah, that was one of the things we're going to talk about that, uh, you know, how important is that in in placing the needs of your clients in front of selling them a product? Um, I mean, if you could, I guess, elaborate on that a little bit. Well, you know, here's the problem. The problem is the industry and the financial planning process being broken. Um, the original financial planning, when it was first thought up, was we're going to have a financial planner yep. who's going to coordinate all the different people to do what they're good at. Yep. Um, the investment guy, the insurance guy, the accountant guy, the lawyer, and so forth. And that financial planner would work you know, for a fee, and the other people would get paid how they get paid, but the financial planner would basically oversee the whole process. Well, then the insurance companies and the investment firms, they started buying the same type of software and doing running financial plans for their clients, which would end up being 20, 30, 40 page financial plans. They'd be, you know, very difficult to read. Yep. And as a result, they would be very, very confusing. 
and they could be manipulated to sell products. So what do I mean by that? Um, when you can adjust an interest rate, mm -hmm. you can lower what the expected rate of return is in order to cause an investor to have to put more money away. Or you can make the inflation rate a little bit higher to have the investor put away a little bit more money. So as a result of that, most investors don't really understand what they're reading. And it becomes very easy, so to speak, to lead them in a direction to sell products that you just want to sell. Yes. Uh, that's, one of the, that's one of the problems. The other problem is there's a lot of what we refer to as myths when it comes to investing. Mm -hmm. um, for example, one of the myths is track record. You know, investing based upon a company's past performance or a manager's past performance. And the reality is that a manager's past performance has a zero correlation to what he or she will do in the future. Well, that sounds a little confusing. So let me kind of give you an analogy for that. Have you ever been driving your car, we'll say, in excess of the speed limit? Yes. Okay. So is that event something that you now have a system that you can get away with it every time you do it? Or have you just gotten lucky and the next time you do it, you might get unlucky? Yeah, the risk is there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yep. So when you're buying an investment based upon, or a mutual fund will say, based upon its previous track record, that manager there does not have a system that he or she can continually do it consistently and predictably. Ah, yes. And if they were, there would not be, you know, all the mutual funds that have gone out of business. You know, the first mutual fund in America came out in 1923. And over through, through 2022, there have been over 75,000 mutual funds created. Today, there's approximately 34,000 mutual funds still in existence, which means over 40,000 mutual funds have gone out or gone under. Yeah. What happens is they just got merged into the funds that have been successful, but those funds that were unsuccessful and got taken out were simply that, you know, merged into the other funds. So now it looks like the companies are actually better than they really are. Yes. Bit so that, that's, a, that's a myth. Yep. Yeah. So what attracted me to Paul and the reason why I came up there was I was teaching these concepts in Florida. Paul was teaching them here in Tennessee. But because of my cancer back in 2004 and 2005, mm -hmm. my business, you know, I was able to maintain the few clients that I had. But a lot of my money that I had in the bank went to pay all my medical bills. Yeah. So it was very, very difficult for me to begin to market yep. and then start building my business. So 
I was servicing my clients, getting a little bit more business here and there, but not able to help clients the way I truly wanted to do it. Yes. And when Paul presented me that opportunity to actually yeah. help save investors yep. and educate them so that they can become confident and relaxed about money, that's when I made the decision 15 years ago in 2008 to come up here makes all the sense in the world now tell me i'm really interested about your use of the Nobel prize winning investment principles tell us a little bit about that well sadly and this is you know what i was saying uh, a little while ago the industry when i got into the industry in 1984 you know these principles some of them were already established okay like yep. we use this thing uh, that won the Nobel Prize in 1990 uh, about asset allocation and what's called the efficient frontier and modern portfolio theory. Well, I did not learn about that. The industry never taught me about that. I actually learned it from academics outside the industry in 2001. So here it was, 17 years, I'm doing what the industry taught me. And then when I discovered the world of academic investing and the science of investing, mm -hmm. it totally blew my mind. And I realized that I was not doing it the right way for clients and clients would have been much better off had I had this approach 17 years earlier. Yeah. So there are a number of academics like we follow the work of Dr. Harry Markowitz, who actually conceived of the efficient frontier, which is the ability to have the highest rate of return for the maximum amount of risk over a given time period. He actually earned his PhD in that in 1952 from the University of Chicago. And then we follow another gentleman by the name of Eugene Fama, who won the Nobel Prize in 2013 for something called the three-factor model. And that determines where returns are gonna come from and shows that certain areas of the market have higher rates of return. And this his work goes back to the 20s as well, 1923. Yep. Um, or 1926, excuse me, you know, as far back as the S&P goes. So these ways of putting together a portfolio actually can help an investor know that the portfolios are built on science, not an advisor like I was trained that put together a portfolio based upon the names of the funds, not knowing what's even in the fund. Mm -hmm. You know, where I look at portfolios today, when people come into me, and I see funds, uh, portfolios with funds, maybe 10, 15, 20 different funds, and two-thirds of the funds are holding the same securities. Huh. You know, and they're not diversified at all. Yeah, yeah they're crazy. diversified by the name of mutual name, funds. Name only. But not the underlying investments within it. Yeah, it's dangerous, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Oh, look, this is, this is wonderful. I, I'm wondering, uh, you talked about when people come in to see you, what type of people are your preferred clients and, and what happens? How do you meet them where they are and what's the onboarding process to work with somebody? Um, most of our clients do come from, first and foremost, our radio show. Yep. Um, is that called we, the Investor Coaching Show? 
the Investor Coaching Show. It's on on Saturdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Fantastic. On uh, a radio station, uh, 99.7 FM, uh, WTN. Uh, and that's located here in Nashville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And then other clients come primarily through referrals. Uh, people that are clients or people that we meet, whether it be at a chamber of commerce meeting or an association meeting or just out over dinner. I was on a plane flight to Florida a few weeks ago and you know, I was talking to a gentleman next to me and the woman, as the plane landed and we pulled taxiing in, she said, can I get your card? I know I need to start doing something. And I'd like to talk to you, and I gave her my number, and she reached out go. to me a week later, and I was able to help guide her on what to do. The world uh, works in mysterious ways, does it not? Now, <laughs> tell just, me a little. You just, you just never know, do you? You just never know. Now, well, look, can tell me, if uh, people want to reach out to you, um, Ira, where is the best place to locate you? Do you? Obviously, there's the radio show where people can reach out, and, and which we'll be providing all the links for. Um, but where else? Well, one of the easiest things to do is to just go online to www.paulwinkler, that's P-A-U-L-W-I-N-K-L-E-R.com. Yep. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that people will find about our website is that unlike most websites, which are salesy in nature, everything on our website is education. There is nothing pointing you to a sale about anything. At all. And then we offer a lot of in-person meetings. We do a lot of group meetings, uh, primarily because there's safety in numbers and we like to tell the story once. Now I always say, you know, if I can tell the story to 10 couples at one time or one couple at a time, that's 10 times as long. So I would prefer to do a monthly meeting and have 10, 12, 15 couples in the meeting. My training room, I just built a brand new state-of-the-art training room um, that will see close to 50 people in it um, because that allows me to have time to do more stuff with my wife. Remember what I said at the beginning? I do believe it. If you work hard, you should play hard. Oh, yes. Um, And that's one of the things that I want to do is help my clients become confident investors so that they can spend more time doing what they love rather than trying to figure out how should I put, where should I put my money? How should I invest? What's going to give me the best return? You know, these are all things that could be known. You're not going to know, well, what's my return going to be this year? But based upon the science of investing, we could know what the expected return is going to be over the next 10 years. And we yep. can know fairly close to that. Yep. So by going to the website, paulwinkler.com, and looking at the education, my email address, Ira at Paul Winker, I'd be happy to answer any questions that way. Um, the radio show, it could be heard on iHeartRadio. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's another avenue which you could um, get us on if you're not living in the Tennessee area. Yep. Uh, I have clients in 11 different states from California to Florida to you know, Illinois and Pennsylvania. Yep. Um, so we can help anybody and most of us learned how much easier it is to communicate unfortunately due to COVID but I think that was maybe one of the silver linings is that people now can do what we're doing here get on a zoom meeting oh, or, it's wonderful you know 
it's just absolutely the technology is there to really help. You talk about silver lining. This has been one of those calls, Ira, that I've really enjoyed. I'm sure that there are lots of uh, listeners who are going to reach out to you and the team at Paul Winkler. Again, if you're interested in learning more, you might have a portfolio already. You want to expand that portfolio or you're just seeking some education, some information. Certainly reach out to Ira and the team at paulwinkler.com. I'll be making sure that that link's available below this call. No matter where you see it, you're going to find the link. So with all that being said, Ira, wonderful call. Thank you so very much for joining me on the show today. It's been great, Rick, and I enjoyed our time together.